0: The concept of a monarchy in general, we think that monarchies exist to create continuity, you know, consistency, uh, maintain the traditions, but really, historically, monarchies just create chaos. And, And so the idea that someone is asked to take on something that they may not want, they may not be interested in, they may not even be qualified for it, It creates this wonderful tension because you say, well, I have no experience doing this thing, and now I'm in charge. You know, there's that idea that maybe I'll do things differently or I'll be better. And so often in a succession trope, the person who thinks that they're gonna do it better than their father did, ends up making the same mistakes or is even worse than the person before them.
1: Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. David Hopkins, thank you so much for joining me on Speculative Sandbox. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on here.
1: I'm excited to talk about our topic, which is going to be succession. But first, can you please tell our listeners about yourself and some of your latest projects?
0: Sure thing. I am a fantasy author. My book, The Dryad's Crown, is coming out on September 5th. It is an adult epic fantasy that spans multiple generations A little bit of a chunky novel at around 618 pages. And so, yeah, I've been working on that for a while now. So it's nice to finally get it out the door.
1: That's really exciting. Okay. And before we get started on the topic itself, I have some icebreaker questions for you. So are you ready? I, I am ready. Okay. The first one's easy. It's, are you a dog or a cat person?
0: I thought I was a cat person. It turns out I'm a dog person.
1: Oh, did you have to get a dog to find out?
0: Yes. My, my wife was a dog person and the dog was not a cat dog. So we had to rehome the cat and it turns out that I'd been missing out on dogs my whole life.
1: Oh, I, well, I'm the opposite. I've had dogs my whole life. We have allergies in the family and I can't get a cat. And I've been really wanting a cat. I hear good stories. And I also hear like stories where cats are mean. So what was your cat like?
0: My cat was great. We kind of lived separate lives, which was a, a great thing. But the problem was, is I was in a never ending battle against the litter box. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, it just breaks you. And you're like, I can't do this anymore. Why can't you just go outside like a dog? But no. Uh,
1: well, that explains all the TikTok ads I keep seeing of like revolutionary modern cat litter cleaners. I was like, what is going on? But I guess maybe that's like a a, a need
0: you know, society will become perfect and whole once we figure out that problem. I think so. Yeah.
1: All right, and then we talked about this briefly in the emails. I'm curious to know if you got a chance to watch it yet. Have you watched Succession on HBO Max yet?
0: I am almost finished. I am right at season four, episode three, so I'm I'm close to the end.
1: Oh, so I can't even talk about the outcome of that. Like we just got to <laughs> skip over that. Oh my gosh, you're right there. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I know you- my
0: Shakespeare, so I've got some theories.
1: Okay, okay. Um, yeah, cuz when you first came with the idea of succession, I was like, "Oh, well, funny enough, I'm literally finishing up that that show, and it's such a great modern retelling, basically or telling, I guess you can say of, of like it is a very Shakespearean kind of story. Oh, um,
0: absolutely. And you can tell that they know it, too, because I think in almost every episode, they sneak in a Shakespeare reference, which is just hilarious.
1: It, isn't it great how like, you could look, depending on, I guess, your humor, It's it plays very serious, but it is hilarious. The whole show it, is hilarious.
0: It is definitely a... a tragic comedy or a comedic tragedy it it is it is both it is the duck and the rabbit you you, you can't see them at the same time but Mm. yeah I find myself laughing at the most horrible things while I'm watching that show (laughs)
1: like um, I'm sure you've seen this one where Tom interviews someone to make sure that they're not a Nazi and then as they get (laughs) progressively further into the conversation he's like oh he is and like lots of problematic issues and it's such a serious thing but it's just the way the actors are it's just fantastic
0: Oh yeah! In fact, the last episode I saw, uh, Rome talked about how he needed his dad to apologize to him for beating him as a child, and the delivery is hilarious because he then says, "Yeah, but I was really annoying." Yeah. And so you're like, and you're so you're simultaneous. Your heart is breaking because you're like, this is horrible, but the delivery is so funny because of the way he he delivers everything that yeah you find yourself laughing at the worst possible things
1: mm-hmm. and i really love that approach i i i wrote a book that's currently on submission that has a lot of humor specifically about things that are kind of that that are traumatic and i i actually really like humor as a form of kind of expression when it comes to things like that cuz sometimes you're tired of it being so dark you know and you oh, need absolutely. that levity so i appreciate it Okay, have you, now we're kind of really cycling into this topic, have you ever been in line to inherit any kind of power of some sort?
0: I am the firstborn of my household, but I don't know if that actually got me anything as a result.
1: Okay, I mean, you don't even get your name, right? Because in, in modern days, like people <laughs> change, they don't change their name, last names anymore when they get married, or they come up with like hybrid names now, right? Like the traditional idea of you have to carry on your family name as as the son of the household, Doesn't really have much weight anymore, it seems.
0: No, and I couldn't even take my wife's name because my father-in-law is also named David. So it would just be weird for her to be married to david wenzel when that's like her dad's name so weird so we we had to maintain the hopkins name but my family is actually they are very proud of being hopkinses and every three years we have a giant family reunion so there is definitely a sense that we have some sort of divine right as hopkinses Mm -hmm. but i i haven't gotten any crowns no land has been deeded to me um, yeah, so it, it's kind of a bum deal. But you know what, if I had lived back in the Renaissance and medieval days, I probably would have been a farmer. So probably good. I'm not back then either. So.
1: Well, you know what you got to do know that you now need to start the succession, right? It starts <laughs> with you. <laughs> so you got I don't know what that would look like. But you're like, I will bequeath upon my descendants a very specific thing. And then you can get the the race started.
0: You know, uh, if Shakespeare's taught me anything, it's that the king is usually the least happy person in his plays.
1: Oh yeah, they—they okay. they,
0: you do not envy them.
1: <laughs> so, what interested you in the trope of succession?
0: I think there's a few things in particular that really kind of caught my imagination. I think that there's a part of it that is the obsession with celebrity culture. This idea that these are powerful, interesting, famous people. Um, I think that there is that idea of the father being replaced by the son Mm -hmm. or the daughter by, you know, the mother by the daughter. I think that there's almost like an Oedipal type intrigue about this idea of replacing the previous generation. Um, There's court intrigue. Um, you know, there's the battles that take place with the swords, but then there's the battle of words that happen at the at the at the special celebrations, at those moments, the power struggles, the betrayals, the clever twists. There's a lot to love about succession storylines.
1: Do you think when it comes to genre and, you know, identifying books and movies that specifically focus on succession, um, do we? What do you think people like to find it in? Is it fantasy? Is it more, you know, classical tragedy? Where where do you tend to find these genres? Or I'm sorry, where do you find this trope in which genres?
0: I mean, obviously, it could show up in any genre. We see that with the HBO show Succession, which we talked about. But obviously, fantasy, particularly because so much fantasy is rooted in a medieval renaissance sensibility. Um, it's hard to find any of those medieval-esque fantasies that don't have a monarchy of some sort. And that story tends to sink in pretty deeply into the fantasy genre. Um, It's almost hard to think about fantasy without uh, a return of the king, so to speak.
1: So that makes me think, okay, so we have the medieval established idea of Game of Thrones, literally everyone's playing a game to get on the throne, the person that thinks there's like two different people that think that the throne is automatically theirs, or even three, a bunch of family members, basically. Um, But then we jump forward and we look at modern interpretations of this. So we don't have kings and castles here in America. We have corporations, which is where succession goes. We have restaurants, which I started watching the show The Bear. And that's about someone who inherited, I believe, either his brother... Oh, gosh, my memory's so bad. A family member's restaurant, and so he's trying to deal with that, and he's got conflicts with other people who don't know why he got it. Um, so what are some fun ways that we can play with the succession idea that isn't necessarily about a, a castle or a kingdom?
0: I think part of it is that the concept of a of a monarchy in general, we think that monarchies exist to create continuity, to create, uh, you know, consistency. Uh, maintain the traditions, but really, historically, monarchies just create chaos. Um, there, there's, and, and so the idea that someone is asked to take on something that they may not want, they may not be interested in, they may not even be qualified for it, but the person before them says, now you must be in charge of the restaurant. And it creates this wonderful tension Because you say, well, I have no experience doing this thing, and now I'm in charge. Uh, You know, there's that idea that maybe I'll do things differently or I'll be better. And so often in a succession trope, the person who thinks that they're going to do it better than their father did ends up making the same mistakes or is even worse than the person before them.
1: What type of characters are typically in consideration for succession? Uh, some of the things I was thinking was the firstborn, right, the heir, oh, yeah. the rival, the family member. So, what are what's a what's a good variety of contenders?
0: You know, I think that um, we tend to divide the kings in sort of the the good king, bad king, dichotomy that we look and say, okay, this person looks like they might be good for the job. And this person, you know, the uncle who is taking over until you come of age is absolutely terrible at it. And so we're looking at people who are, you know, we're trying to see the things that we would like in our own politicians. We want people that are empathetic, that are not power hungry, that are wise. um, And yet we end up with people that are, you know, thirsting for blood. They they solve their problems through power and violence. And so I think it becomes a a great way to magnify the best and worst of human nature. And that's usually who you see vying for the throne is the good option, bad option, I think is really where it creates a nice little uh, parallel between the two.
1: That's cool that you mentioned interims. I work in government, so we have interims all the time. Anytime a yes. position of leadership leaves, an interim is put in its place. Sometimes it's the deputy, which has you know been uh, there and their career has been built up to serve this role. Sometimes it's someone else. And I mean, I've never actually been in a situation where I've seen any interim like be the villain (laughs) you know what I mean like the equivalent of of the medieval uh king uh, succession uh for the most part the ones I've seen are like they're they're they they're happy with the role they played. they're open to the opportunity or some are like literally like I'm just gonna hold down the fort until you guys find someone else right uh but that's such a cool idea to think that the succession can happen in many ways shapes um not just in the traditional medieval way but a lot of that stuff translates to modern day
0: Oh, absolutely, and I was even thinking of, uh, I'm reading a great fantasy series right now called uh, Magic of the Lost by C.L. Clark, and that's a story about an uncle that takes over for his daughter, who's the rightful heir, and because she's too young, and you know, eventually he's like, mm, I kind of like being in charge, I don't have any plans to give it up. Mm. And so you see that. And of course, in Henry the Sixth, we have a very young king, and someone has to sort of serve in his absence. And then eventually he has to, to muscle his way back to, to the role that he was destined to be in. And you see that in in modern day storytelling, where this idea of this is mine, I deserve it, it's the thing that, that I'm supposed to have. And we just kind of kick it down the road a little bit and say, no, you're not ready yet and they're they're so hungry to prove that they are.
1: What do you think is a more satisfactory ending? Is it the person who feels entitled and is the power hungry person that wants the role or is it the person that does the work and deserves the role?
0: As a reader, obviously I want my favorite to get the to to sit on the throne at the end, but as a writer I know that I think the best endings are just so chaotic where a person you didn't even expect is now sitting on the throne. Uh, And and you go, how did this happen? You know, there's a pile of bodies and the one person left is someone that we didn't even see coming. I think that that, that's always the best thing about the succession trope is when you have someone just flying in from the side um, that kind of takes over and you go, oh man, I should have been keeping an eye on him this whole time. Or her.
1: I love that too. So then, okay. What did you think of the ending for Game of Thrones? The result, the King Bran on the on the throne. Um
0: ugh, that that's that's like a whole podcast in itself, right? <laughs> no, I I am anxiously waiting for that day when a song of ice and fire is wrapped up by George R.R. R. Martin, and then I will have my final opinion. I'm not I'm okay with Bran taking the throne because it just became a very complete victory for the Starks all around. Um, you know, you got Sansa, who's now Queen of the North. You have Bran, who's on the throne in in the South. Yeah, I mean, they're just, they just dominated in every way and they all survived, or at least many of them. Most of them. Most, of them. <laughs> most, 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 you know. I, I feel like George R.R. R. Martin put like a moratorium on killing off Starks at a certain point uh spoilers but um i think bran on the throne makes sense i don't feel like they set it up well enough though i feel like we needed more screen time with bran in that final season to really show him sort of deserving it versus it just being thrown in his lap
1: do you think that was the ending george rr R. martin wanted or did they make that up themselves i think
0: it's i think it's the ending he wanted but i wouldn't be surprised if he changed it based on how i mean basically he's had millions of people beta read his last book by watching the show and i think he's probably going to change it a little bit that would be my guess
1: so then switching to succession since you haven't finished it yet based off of the characters you know and where things are going who do you think is gonna be fun who do you think is gonna get the corporation
0: well, saying that I want someone to swoop in from out of nowhere, I got to go with Greg, right? Okay. Greg, the first episode he loses his job working at the theme park because he's high when he goes to work and then he tries to go to his great uncle to get his job back and then look, four seasons later he's now the head of of everything. But no, I, that would be absurd, um so I can't go with that. Um Part of me wonders if uh, there is a great sort of deception by one of the siblings in order to put them on the throne. So it's kind of like, I got what I wanted, but at what cost? Mm. Okay. But if we go by King Lear standards, you know, I would be surprised if all three of the kids make it to the end because, uh, yeah, when when you go for the throne, sometimes uh, you don't always make it.
1: Oh, Okay. Well then when you finish watching, you'll have to DM me and we'll continue this conversation. We'll compare notes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So is the point, so we just talked about different characters and um, you know, whether or not they're able or should have gotten the throne. So is the point of succession stories to get the readers to root for different characters? And if so, how can authors make these characters likable and worth rooting for? Do they have to be likable? That was a big question. So feel free to pick oh, yeah. that down if you want. Yeah, I think
0: that there is this idea of rooting for a character. Uh, we look, and I'm going to keep referencing Shakespeare. Uh, we have Richard II, in which you have Richard II, and then you have Bolingbroke, who eventually takes the the throne from Richard. And you get the idea that Richard II is out of touch. He doesn't quite understand the people. And Bolingbroke is a man of the people. He he's He's got youthful energy. He is noble and just. And we find ourselves rooting for him, even though we know he is not the rightful heir. And I feel like Shakespeare probably did that intentionally. He wanted to create this conflict where we say, well... You know, I live in England during the 15 and 1600s. I know about the divine right of kings. Obviously, Richard II should be king. But Bolinbrook seems like such a uh, such a compelling option here. And I think that good stories like that will sort of give you these breadcrumbs of people you should root for. But I also think, you know, you look at like pro wrestling. Pro wrestling is a succession drama. Every single week, people are fighting for the belt. And the greatest thing is when the heel, you know, is in this dominant place of power and we all just love to hate them. I think that stories like Game of Thrones have done that very well, where the people you don't want in power are there and it creates such, I'm gonna use the word a lot, but it creates such lovely tension because we just can't stand the fact that this person is sitting there. I hope that answered the question.
1: Yeah, I, I okay, think yeah. it opens up the door for, depending on the type of person you are, the viewer or reader, you can find something to like about any character. right? I, I just Absolutely. think about Game of Thrones where some people were rooting for pretty much any of all of them in succession is the same way. Different people kind of had their, they were rooting for different people. And I just kind of like that because, you know, there's diversity in, in real life. And so it kind of helps to have these different, t- the tensions that you, you described in the different characters to appeal to those different crowds.
0: Yeah, you know, and uh, in Richard III, you have a villainous main character in Richard the Third. but my goodness, is he likable. He is witty. He is absolutely funny. He's ruthless and terrible, but um, he makes us laugh and he amuses us. And I think that sometimes even in the worst characters, you can create this likability with them that you say, man, you know, she drives me crazy, but wow, did she really take care of business in this one scene? And we like that competency, even if we know, I mean, sure, you wouldn't want to be related to her but or or work for her, but uh, she clearly is the most competent person.
1: For writers thinking about their succession story and, and looking at examples of succession fiction, should the actual winner... Be introduced really early on at the beginning, or can they be introduced later?
0: I feel like they typically get introduced early on. Uh, they don't always maintain the same screen time or, or page count early on. They kind of they can sometimes grow in status. You could introduce them later. Um, But if you do, you need to show a lineage there. You know, one of the things that I really love about succession stories is it can be a story that you tell over generations. So we know the grandfather and the father, and actually A Song of Ice and Fire does this really well. Any person who's a big fan of that series can probably map out several families' family trees and show you the different, you know, okay, this person was married to this person who had these three children, and then this person, you know, and you just break down the family. Um, But I feel like, you know, as messy as it gets, I do think that the major players need to uh, come into prominence fairly early in the story.
1: Yeah, I I kind of wondered that, too. Part of me always wonders if if the winner of the Game of Thrones was I'm trying to think of a random character that came in late in Game of Thrones. Oh, the guy 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 from the
0: Iron Isles, uh, the pirate guy
1: yes could you Pirate imagine if, like he got it um yeah
0: i feel like it would have been one of those things where it's like well the whole point is is that i'm i'm playing i'm kind of playing the lottery here and i'm holding a ticket and the numbers weren't even available <laughs> you know
1: yeah like because I, I think a lot of it has to do with how people seem to react to Daenerys, where she had a character shift that i think mm-hmm. kind of the breadcrumbs were there but i think yes. the pacing of it, it everyone felt cheated. A little bit about like, I could imagine like a whole other season just showing that downfall. And that would have been way more interesting and intriguing than just like a last minute change.
0: Absolutely. They were a victim of their own pacing, which is one of the reasons why I'm so thankful to be writing an independent series where I can decide how long it's going to take versus we need to wrap, you know, really what was probably about three seasons worth of story in one season um, the Daenerys story, I mean, because yeah, we saw glimpses of her being terrible, but we also saw glimpses of her being, you know, a, a wonderful and magnanimous ruler. And then you have this almost complete 180 where you go, Wow, the bell's rung, and she just completely went off the deep end. I do love it though, because Robert Baratheon called it in the first season. Like my, oh, my boy, Bobby Baratheon, he was correct from the very beginning.
1: <laughs> what did he say? I forgot.
0: He wanted her killed. He was like, she oh, is a right. problem, and we got to send assassins to get rid of her. And of course, Ned Stark wouldn't do it because he was like, she's just a child. And Robert Baratheon's like, nope, the Targaryens are too dangerous. And so, yeah, you look at it, and you go, well, killing a child is obviously wrong. But Robert Baratheon understood that their claim to the throne would cause greater problems later on. I mean, you see this in Dune and then Dune Messiah. Uh, Paul Atreides has to commit unspeakable evils in order to preserve the lives of more people. And, and that thing that's the thing about kings and queens that we love so much is that they get confronted with moral issues that we never have to deal with But they are literally holding life and death in their hands and they have to decide, do I save, you know, do I, do I kill the 100 to save the 1000?
1: That segues really well to my next question, because as I watch Game of Thrones, for example, as I I read the books, I'm like, what about these people, right? Like, it seems (laughs) like the people are just part of this on fire backdrop (laughs) as all the royals fight each other. So... What, what do we care? Do we care about the people that these succeeders are ultimately responsible for? Do we care that, oh, did you get to the election episode yet for succession?
0: No, I mean, I know that uh, Connor is running for president. He's got his 1% of the vote. (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> there's, you're coming up on an election episode where, you know, how like news can, can have a huge impact on the general public's opinion and, oh, absolutely. you know, the, the momentum of election night. Okay. So that's what's at stake with these people fighting for the top. And then Game of Thrones, you have like, Arya for the whole of season two, I think is on the run and you're watching villages get torched and people get tortured on the end. And I'm like, at the end of the day, <laughs> especially yeah. in Game of Thrones. Are there any people left to rule? Are are we supposed to care about things or do we just care about the people that we're rooting for?
0: You know, I think if it's well-written, you need to see both sides. You need to see the pauper and the king. You need to see, or the prince and the pauper. That's the, you need to see both. Uh, you know, I've often heard that good battle scenes will involve sort of the high above view but also in the thick of it battle, you know, that we're, we're on the front lines, but then we also see the bigger picture as well. I think good storytelling does that where we understand that the farmer doesn't care who's sitting on the throne. Not really. Um, what they care about is their harvest. They care about feeding their family. They care about Vikings invading their homeland and stealing all their stuff. You know, everything that they deal with is very much on their level, and then you have these you know these giants basically kind of stomping through their world with their dumb decisions that ruin it for everyone so i feel like the best stories will tell both but ultimately i think what happens is it's hard to tell a story that involves a mass of people because at a certain point they just become a statistic
1: mm-hmm. That makes me think of Greg in season one of Succession where he literally has no money and Shiv <laughs> basically robs him for his money for the vending machine and he's has no nothing, right? Obviously he works his way through and in and he's privileged because he's part of the family. But it's it was a really interesting kind of temperature gauge between someone who is poor and doesn't know what, where their next meal is coming versus these very, very wealthy people that are so detached from reality.
0: Oh yeah, and you find that what they care about makes no sense to the average person. I was watching one episode where they were making fun. Greg brought a date to the birthday party and she had a really large purse with her.
1: A ludicrously capacious handbag. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. And like, that's not something I would even think about. But in their polite society, I use the term ironically, they that matters to them. That, you know, oh, it's so embarrassing that she came in with this very large... <laughs> First, and I think that that's one of the things that we enjoy about succession stories is we like seeing sort of the absurdity of this monarchical class that that the things they worry about are sort of both above and beneath us.
1: So, is succession stories meant to serve the common person who reads it? Like, are like is the target audience? the commoner or is it also beneficial to those that are up there
0: um yes I I would say for both um obviously when Shakespeare was writing in the 1500s and 1600s uh Queen Elizabeth I did not have an heir uh and she was not married and she had no intention of having kids and she outlawed punishable upon death anyone talking about the succession and so what happens when people are told they can't talk about something Now it's on their minds. Who's going to take over after Queen Elizabeth dies? And so playwrights would write plays about other monarchs and other times in history, but they were really talking about the time that they were living in. The anxiety of succession was mirroring the common person's anxiety about Queen Elizabeth's succession. So in that, I think that it is for the common person that we, we look at it. And, and we're fascinated by it, but then you also take um, someone like uh, King Charles, who has said that Shakespeare's historical plays were tremendously—they really spoke to him. That that he in in seeing the the monologues of Henry V and you know he saw a little bit of himself in all of that, and I, I find that very fascinating um, because. Here is literally a monarch telling us that, yeah, the succession stories fascinate him. Or even to listen to, uh, gosh, is it um, Harry saying that he's watched The Crown?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that, this is, that's so good because the next segment is succession stories in real life. Yeah. So tell me about that. What, what are some examples of successions? We talked about Harry. You talked yeah. about Queen Elizabeth. Um, I didn't know that, but it seems very obvious to me now that, of course, playwrights uh, would be inspired by that. Um, and that's amazing. Was that during Shakespeare's time? I don't know. My yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. During the 1590s in particular, she died in 1603. And yeah, that was, I mean, for Shakespeare, it was a commercial consideration. He knew the best selling plays would be about historical succession stories. Henry IV was tremendously popular. Henry V i mean these were these were big stories for him because people were they couldn't talk about queen elizabeth but they could talk about other kings and queens and so that gave them sort of an outlet of something that everyone was was interested in
1: before we get to queen elizabeth i think of her father king yes. henry um who was very stressed out to get to his next, you know, heir and went through six wives. Was it? Let's see. Let's see if I can remember them. Queen Catherine, uh, Anne Boleyn, Jane yeah. Seymour, uh, Catherine Howard, uh, Anne of Cleves, and yeah, another Catherine.
0: <laughs> the Catherine of Aragon.
1: Catherine of Aragon. Yes. <laughs> I used to read those big like, books, fictional history oh. books, like when I was in college Uh, so clearly he's very, very stressed out about, um, his, his future offspring. He needs to have a, a, a boy and he keeps having either miscarriages or girls. So he has princess Mary and princess Elizabeth. And of course they create a whole issue later on down the line. Um, what I always thought was so interesting was that, and I don't know how true this is and maybe you can give me your, your thoughts was that there, there was a shift in King Henry's persona, as he aged that some people attribute maybe to like an, uh, a, what is that sport he does on a horse with a la- lancing Lance? What is that jousting. called? Jousting, like a jousting accident where it could have had like a profound effect, not just on like the wound that made him like have a hard time walking, but maybe even like mental, right. When you have like trauma um, because they talk about how he was this one golden person. And then later on in life, he's just this evil paranoid person and so um i always like looking at king henry as just like this mess of a man and just the awful awful things that he did of course but not only that but the effect he had on the entire country and how people are getting whipped around based off of what you know he wants to do and which church so what are your thoughts on king henry
0: you know king henry is interesting from the standpoint of i think we have an entire genre of fantasy the romance fantasy genre that is just booming right now thanks to you know sarah moss um But that idea of forced marriage, um, of the you are going to marry this king because you are a suitable bride for him, it's horrific in reality. But my goodness, the romance fantasy genre has taken that trope (laughs) straight to the bank. And it is definitely partnered with the succession story because the whole idea is you are here to produce an heir for me. I mean... It sounds like the rantings of of a mad person, but we know in history this is also true. Um, So I think that there is something about that idea of love and marriage, because once again, the the average person, the farmer, doesn't have to worry about being obligated to marry the king. Um, So I think that plays out interesting. Did he really love any of them? You know, was there love? Was this just a means to an end? You know, those kind of stories become very fascinating to us. I think the other thing is, obviously, history proved to be a very a very fascinating, you know, history is not without its sense of irony, because we look at Queen Elizabeth as being one of the most powerful monarchs that England ever had. Mm-hmm. And here, Henry VIII is trying to avoid precisely what they got, which was Queen Elizabeth on the throne. And yeah, she she ushered in a whole new age for England.
1: What do you think moving down the family line where we are now with King Charles, Prince William, I all I know is that there was supposedly drama because pe- the people wanted Prince William and that King Charles could have been bitter about this because he's owed it. I didn't think that public opinion could just change the direction of the inheritance. <laughs> is that true? I don't know. I'm not British. <laughs>
0: there's a little footnote in in British history that says, if you're really unpopular, no, I don't. Yeah, I feel like um, maybe this is my Irish heritage coming out. I feel like we're getting towards the end of British monarchies. Um, You know, I know that the crown on Netflix, that's almost the entire theme of it is, have we outgrown the monarchy? And part of me has to say that, yeah, this whole concept of the divine right of monarchs is absurd. Um, It is classist. It is harmful. You know, you see the damage that it's even done with Harry and Meghan. Um, I think I've got the names right. Yeah, Harry and Meghan. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, we're getting confronted with some real racist and bigoted opinions connected to this royal family. So yeah, I don't think Charles is a popular king and he probably will never be a popular king because he will forever be remembered as the person who had been so cruel to his first wife. And we look at Camilla as being you know, complicit in this whole thing. So yeah, I feel like once again, monarchies are messy. That's just the way it is. But I do feel like England eventually... You know, Queen Elizabeth II was so beloved that she was able to really maintain the monarchy almost by virtue of her popularity. If King Charles remains to be unpopular, um I can't imagine it's something that they're going to I, I can't imagine it's something they will maintain. But who what, knows? We've been wrong before.
1: <laughs> well, okay, so let's speculate. What would that transition look like? Do we do they move out? Do they At some point, a generation has to start living in regular houses?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think that we do see an example of this with uh, Queen Elizabeth's um, uncle, who advocated the throne, uh, was it right on the heels of World War II, or was it during World War II, where he was in love with this Hollywood actress, this American, and in order to marry her, he decided to step down. I would imagine the monarchy will probably end. If it does end, it will end with a mass abdication. Ad, I can't even say the word abdication of the throne. And yeah, maybe maybe they'll carry the titles, but they will be living in mansions, not castles. And it may just slowly but surely uh, fizzle out um, until, yeah, maybe someone a hundred years from now jokingly knows that they are. Somewhere in that line, but it doesn't mean anything. I think I saw a fascinating video on YouTube where it was saying if George Washington was king, who would be king right now? And they did a whole family tree to show some, some guy living in middle America who would be king of America if that were the case. <laughs>
1: I love alternate history, especially with America looking at, in fact, there's actually books out there. There's a whole series, I think, where it's called American, I think it's actually called American royalty, where they like, what happened if that was the direction we decided to take? Uh, But even without a king and queen, we're still obsessed with the idea of succession, whether through elections or politics, or we watch the family members of the politicians. Uh, I look at jumping back over to the UK a little bit with Harry and Meghan, um, Mm Even though they've left and they're now in California, and I, I I'm, I don't have an, op- I mean, I don't have an opinion on who they are as characters other than what I've read from their materials, but it seems like people seem to be really worried and concerned about like Megan's intentions for becoming queen, and even though Harry's like very far removed, and part of me is like, we the people seem to really like the idea of succession, even if it's the person's actually left and they're far removed from it. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. My, my guess is if, if, since I know Megan so well, uh, no, my guess is, is that Megan probably just wants a comfortable and safe life for her and her family, but the speculation, the gossip, the, you know, well, she didn't show up for this thing. So does that mean, I, I think that it's probably never ending with that. My guess is that while she does probably want as much as any of us would want for our families, um, I I can't imagine, you know, she didn't grow up thinking about monarchies and and monarchical secession. So I can't imagine that that's something that she would even aspire to. Um, But who knows? We we like the idea that maybe this is all part of a master plan, Uh, you know, that Harry is still somewhere in that uh, in that lineup and, and could, you know, she could end up there, you know, next to him on the throne. I mean, but yeah, I think a lot of it is just us playing it's really like fan fiction, but with real people. We're just uh-huh. kind of playing that game in the tabloids
1: well looking at American pop culture, we left royalty, broke away, became our, you know our colonies and then our own country. But yet, you look at our pop culture, and we have inserted royalty in so many places. Yes. I mean, Disney is a huge example where you grow, people grow up very impressionable, and the princesses are what they're, you know, aspiring to be like. And so, what is it about humans that just keep gravitating toward that 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 structure?
0: Yeah, I think about my my youngest daughter, who is convinced that she's going to be a princess, or at least she used to. I think now she's going to be a pop star, which is really. I mean that's as close as you get to royalty in America. I think you could be, you know, Queen Beyonce or Queen Swift. Um, yeah. But yeah, but yeah, I think that there is. I think that part of the appeal, at least in the Disney stories and the fairy tales, is that extreme power shift. I had nothing, and now I am queen. You know, I I, I found my prince, I found my princess, and I started off, you know making clothes for little mice that I talked to in the mornings. And now look at me, I'm, 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 I'm married in this beautiful castle and my stepsisters, you know, can just take that. They never saw the real me. So I i, I think that part of the appeal, at least on Disney level, is the extreme reversal of fortune. Hmm. That,
1: that kind of, it's, it kind of makes me a little sad then thinking about us as a society that it be- it becomes so alluring that idea of, like of uh, of extreme reversals that so many people are, are so wanting right because of legitimate like poverty and circumstances that mm. they're dealing with um that that is one of the most appealing aspects to it and of course when it when it comes to royalty it's always going to be an extreme minority it's not obtainable by even a handful of of people so i guess what would be Okay, so then succession is the the chase to the top, the appeal. But what would a society look like where we didn't find ourselves wanting for that?
0: Oh, well, well now we start talking about Marx and we talk oh, about... No. <laughs> <laughs> raise your sickle and hammer. No, I mean, it is. <laughs> Power to the people. Uh, no, I think that, honestly, we look at at least in England, with the extreme wealth of the monarchy. I don't know the, the economics of it, but I would think that if you were to take their money and redistribute it, it may not make a huge difference in the grand scheme of things. However, in the United States, if we were to take the money that the billionaires have and redistribute it, it would be life-changing. So it is funny that we look at these monarchs and in America, in our midst, we have people that are far more powerful than anyone who wears a crown over in England. Um, So I, I do wonder, yeah, if we were to get rid of that kind of monarchy, you know, even in my own novel, The Dryad's Crown, I don't have a monarchy in there, but there's still power struggles to be had. So one wonders if you can ever, get away from that sort of aspirational quality where people are just striving for more and more and more.
1: Yeah. I, I feel like we could never, I feel like human nature is to at least feel progress uh, yeah. at, at the most optimistic, right. To feel like you're, you're moving somewhere, you're accomplishing things. And I think standing still is really hard for, for people and and it looks different for every single person. Um, but just like those that are just trying to find meaning in life, like that's the act of, of progression um. So, anyway, do you have any other further examples of succession stories in real life?
0: Hmm. I mean, I think we've touched on the, sort of the corporate idea, you know, and even in politics, we talk about, you know, to me, it's wild that we have fathers and sons who have been president. You know, of mm-hmm. all the people that are qualified having the last name of Adams or having the last name of Bush or Clinton, that, that somehow, you know, these names, while they are not monarchs, there is political capital in those names. You know, Trump. I mean, what what are these things where people go, oh, well, obviously so-and-so should be the next president. And you go, just because they're related to some other guy that was president. Um, so I think that you see it in politics. I think you see it with celebrity culture. I mean,
1: um, oh, Nepo quite babies. honestly,
0: yeah, oh gosh. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, I mean, it's funny until you actually start looking at some of the information about like the likelihood of you being a, making it in Hollywood and just how dependent that could be on your own family. Is, mm. is just wild and we also see it even in it, it's it's interesting to me if you look at what was it the recent um controversy over uh legacy um students in uh, ivy league schools that because your mother or father went to harvard the likelihood of you going to harvard um that's but right we but we say it's okay <laughs> It's okay when the powerful do it. Um, it's not okay when we do it as part of affirmative action, which, once again, to me is criminal and absurd that we allow this favoritism when it benefits the elite. We do not allow that support when it benefits uh, working class people. Yeah,
1: or like what of someone that I follow on Twitter calls it, the global majority. Yes. <laughs> Okay so for writers who are really interested in incorporating some sort of succession in the story or they already are what advice do you have for them
0: I kind of touched on this earlier but I think you need to make it as messy as possible mm, uh, the messier the better
1: <laughs> I love that so is that how how can you make things messy is it like a random murder is it um just conflicting characters what what are your thoughts
0: Well, I think even with let's look back at Game of Thrones, Robert Baratheon was the king and he had illegitimate children. He didn't know they were illegitimate. And so then you look at other children that he had had. Are they the rightful heir? But then you go back further and go, well, Robert Baratheon became king because he killed the Targaryen king. Well, so then does that mean that she's the rightful heir? At a certain point, we realize that it's all ridiculous. But I think in your own storytelling, if it's a straight line to the monarch, then you haven't been doing your work. I think there need to be rival family lines, multiple valid claims for the throne, um, illegitimate children, children that may be legitimate, but absolutely should not be given any power. Um, You know, there, there are people advocating the throne. There are multiple spouses Uh, Yeah. Anything you can do to muddle it as much as possible. I actually think it becomes very entertaining for the reader.
1: And the mistresses. Yes, of course. That's going to be a fun note for you later in the (laughs) series (laughs) of Succession. All right. Well, this was so much fun, David. I really enjoyed talking about Succession with you. Any last remarks?
0: Um, you know, I've um, the past few years I've been teaching Shakespeare. I, I teach through an online uh, writing workshops.com. dot com. Um, I think that for any writers that really want to dig into the succession trope, um, study the Henriad. That is Henry the fourth part one and two, Henry the fifth. Uh, you look at Richard the uh, second study those plays. And there's actually a great BBC series called The Hollow Crown which is practically a primer on how to do it right Uh, it's so well done so well acted and as a writer you could sit there with a notepad and just jot down all the things you see in there and you would come out of it just so ready to take on the world with uh, these sort of succession tropes
1: perfect and how can people find you online
0: they can go to that davidhopkins.com. And from there you can find links to my TikTok, to the Instagram, to Twitter, uh YouTube. I'm I'm all over the place. But if you go to that davidhopkins.com, that's a good hub to find all the information. And of course, tons of information about the dryad's crown is also available there.
1: Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.